grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Today's guest is a former family court judge who chaired the Forced Adoption Apology Reference Group and advised the Department of Health and Australian Psychological Society on forced adoption. He is now a semi-retired adjunct professor in law at Monash University. He joins us from Victoria, where heavy COVID-19 restrictions are again in place. Welcome to Adopt Perspective, Naeem Mushin. Thanks, Joe. Now, we've recorded this episode just as the predicted second wave of COVID-19 hits Victoria. How are things down there for you as the restrictions tighten back up? Well, uh, my uh, uh, wife and I have been in glorious isolation uh, down at our home. We actually live very close to the centre of Melbourne, uh, but we've uh, had this place... uh, Uh, on the Mornington Peninsula for nearly 40 years. And uh, we've been in glorious isolation down here. It's very cold, uh, particularly considering what you Queenslanders experience. Uh, (laughs) But uh, uh, everybody's finding it difficult. The the isolation, the the psychology and emotion of being isolated and not being able to lead your normal life is uh, really quite significant and we're seeing it hit home uh, with people because people we're all social animals in one way or another and we need to pursue that uh, uh, social uh, interest and need uh, for our well-being and uh, this that gives you a very nice segue actually into the whole area of adoption and forced adoption yeah, absolutely. And we wish you a really speedy return to the lighter restrictions down there and, and hopefully we won't follow you into those. those I, think we're, ones. I think we're in this for some weeks to come, uh, Joe, but uh, yeah. it is what it is. Yeah. Naeem, on the 23rd of June 2012, the then Attorney General Nicola Roxon announced the Australian Government's intention to issue a national apology for those affected by forced adoption practices. A short time later, a reference group made up of senators, an MP and people affected by forced adoption was established to provide advice on the wording, timing and delivery of that apology. You're invited to chair both that reference group and the implementation group. That is quite the responsibility. Can you tell us a bit about how that process works? Well, um, it started uh, one evening... uh, at dinner time, actually, when I received a phone call from a very senior member of the Attorney General's Department, Nicola Roxon, of course, was the Attorney General, as you 
correctly said, and if I may say, with respect to an outstanding Attorney General. And uh, uh, this uh, uh, woman from the department asked me whether my name could be put forward uh, for uh, consideration of uh, the position of chair of the Forced Adoptions Apology Reference Group. And uh, I had actually read the report at that stage and I knew very much what she was uh, talking about and I'd seen the recommendations with regard to the apology. So I was, uh, I very enthusiastically accepted that, didn't have to go away and think about it at all. Uh, and then, uh, and then what happens is you you wait weeks. You don't hear anything uh, until uh, oh, it was at least several weeks later that the uh, Attorney General's Chief of Staff rang me and uh, formally uh, invited me uh, for appoint to to accept that appointment, which I was very pleased to do. And that was announced in the media. Uh, or oh, I think 48 hours later. So uh, that was the actual process. Yeah. And I think you had like, you know, four meetings over 18 months. Is that right? To sit down and, and discuss the the wording and, and that kind of thing. Is that correct? Uh, the, the, the apology reference group itself met four times. Yeah. We also had several telephone meetings. Uh, but um, in addition to that, I was very active uh, as part of that, doing consultations right around Australia with regard mm. to the apology. Yeah. So um, when you read the Senate inquiry report, and I guess through the process of, of chairing these committees or groups, I should say, what did you learn about forced adoption? Um, well, the very first emotion is, I think, one of horror to think that an intelligent, educated, developed society like Australia could have treated such vast numbers of its citizens in that way. Uh, it, it's something that, that has always uh, stuck with me. And I mean, I mean it, we've had similar events and the most outstanding one, of course, is the Stolen Generation one, but, but um, it's it's just absolutely horrendous, and the, and, and the emotional reaction to that I can I can remember it to this day was really quite profound. Yeah, yeah. I know um, that when you first read the report into the form of forced adoption policies and practices, one concept really jumped out at you. Can you tell me what it was and why you were willing to go to the barricades to ensure its inclusion in the apology? Well. Joe, as you know, uh, I've been a lawyer all my life, uh, first a solicitor, then a barrister, and then 21 years as a judge of the family court. Mm. And um, uh, the word illegal jumped out at me and has been with me all the time. Uh, the reality about forced adoption is that it involves constant vast and egregious breaches of the law uh, by people in positions of authority. And that had to be called out because, yeah. because if it weren't illegal, if the 
if everything that happened had been in accordance with the law, and I emphasise it wasn't, but if it had been, then really the whole aspect of the apology was quite different because because really all then you would be apologising for um, is the law itself. That is, the law itself is wrong rather than the way it was applied. Now, I think there are lots of areas in which the law was wrong, and we will discuss that as we go on uh, in this discussion. But the way in which it was applied is, my word is egregious, is is absolutely egregious. It was wrong. It was illegal. Uh, And uh, uh, you don't have to be a lawyer to... uh, to uh, know that, but you, uh, but if you are a lawyer, the 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 nuances of it really jump out at you. Yeah, it's quite profound. And 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 and, and yes, you said I was prepared to go to the barricades. It's that's a word that I've used quite often, uh, and in fact, very right at the very beginning, I can remember. Um, uh, during a, a, a morning tea break of that first meeting of the reference group, uh, Attorney General Roxon had attended that group. I took her aside and I said, uh, uh, look, uh, this apology has to include the word illegal. Without the word illegal, it doesn't have the effect and the force that it is required to have. And the whole concept of a of a an apology requires you to be honest about what you're apologising about, and to be detailed about it. And to her eternal credit, uh, uh, Miss Roxon uh, uh, accepted that without the uh, without the slightest hesitation, and it, and it all went on from there. Yeah. And I can understand why you were thinking you could have to go to the barricades because um, historically governments don't like to have a word like that used because then it can lead to compensation and and things that governments don't want to think about. Yes, well, you see, my view about this is that uh, that um, if somebody's entitled to compensation, they're entitled to compensation, and uh, and governments have an absolute responsibility to their citizens to provide that compensation if that's the appropriate way to go, so that. So that dodging the legal aspects of it, uh, particularly, I mean, I can understand private individuals do that uh, as to whether they should or not is a matter of debate in each case. But but certainly for governments, uh, governments need to face these things. And uh, to their eternal credit, the government of the day, uh, led in those circumstances by the Attorney General, uh, went down that path and uh, and wasn't concerned about the the possible legal consequences of using that word. Yeah. Now, we use um, an excerpt from the apology at the beginning of each podcast episode, as we know that many people have yet to even hear the apology or to understand that it could pertain to their own experiences. I regard that speech as one of the most powerful that I've heard in my lifetime. And I was absolutely shattered on the day that it was delivered because it was overshadowed by a leader leadership challenge can i ask you if you were there at the time and can you tell us about that day and and how you felt about it oh joe mentioning that uh, makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up i must say um uh, yes i was there now just by way of uh, backstory with regard to that 
uh, at about uh, nine o'clock on that morning, it was uh, the 21st of March, 2013, who could forget it? Um, uh, I, together with all the members of the reference group, met with the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Gillard, uh, in her office to have a chat about the apology. And you may remember in, the, in that speech that she referred to a number of things that she'd been told by members of the reference group. She didn't actually say that they were members of the reference group, but she referred to it. I must say, I listened, I, I, I watched and listened to that speech again yesterday in anticipation of this morning. Mm -hmm. uh, and it uh, it's still uh, one of the most moving events. But what, what really stands out for me is that during that meeting, which went for, I think, oh, three quarters of an hour or so, maybe an hour, uh, in uh, the Prime Minister's office, uh, there was not the slightest hint of what was going on politically, and yet we later learned that she was already well aware of it. She'd been visited earlier that day and been informed that this was happening, but she gave not one hint at all of it. Uh, and and the, the, the character and personality of a person who can handle herself like that is, is absolutely uh, laudable. Well, um, during uh, the previous day and that day, uh, the day of the apology, I'd done, I don't know, six or eight media interviews, uh, none of which got to air because of uh, what happened later. Uh, yes, I was there. After the apology, uh, there was a, a lunch on the lawns outside Parliament House, and I was there mixing with lots of people. It was a, a, a very... Uh, to a certain extent subdued at a very sort of thoughtful occasion where people were were mulling over what had happened with this extraordinary apology. And incidentally, I, I, I agree with you. I, th I think that speech is one of the really great moments of Australia's political life. I think it was uh, quite exceptional. Ultimately, a story of strength, as those affected by forced adoptions found their voice, organised and shared their experiences, and by speaking truth to power, brought about the apology we offer today. This story had its beginnings in a wrongful belief that women could be separated from their babies and it would all be for the best. Instead, these churches and charities, families, medical staff and bureaucrats struck at the most primal and sacred bond there is, the bond between a mother and her baby. In any event, um, we, were, we were having lunch on the lawns and the rumour started going round that there was a challenge. And sure enough, uh, the rumour was confirmed. Uh, this is probably, I don't know, 1 o'clock, 1.30, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, it completely overshadowed everything. Uh, to the extent, for example, that not one of my interviews made it to the air. Uh, that might have been because of my inadequacy in the interviews, but I like to think that it was because another item of news overtook it. Now, I was so angry 
with what had happened. And uh, this were, it was actions of uh, Mr. Crean, of course, Mr. Simon Crean. I was, can, I can remember being in my hotel that night with my wife and pacing around. And finally, I sat down in front of the computer and wrote Mr. Crean a, um, an email in which I was very critical of him for what he'd done. And I said that I thought that he owed everybody an apology for the way that had occurred and taken all the oxygen out of the apology. And I have to say, I didn't receive any response at all. That's disappointing. Disappointing, yeah. It's um, it's certainly, I, I remember watching the news that day and, and it was well down in the um, the news bulletin, it was very small, um, and it was just utterly disappointing for everybody that had been involved and concerned and affected. Yeah, um, Joe. There's an interesting other thing that goes back with that too. Um, bef- after we had delivered the apology to the government, um, I had a discussion with government about the form that the apology should take, uh, the actual process. And I had ventured the view that the Stolen Generation apology delivered by uh, then Prime Minister Rudd in uh, February 2008 uh, was the way in which they should go. And I was asked whether an apology Uh, in the Great Hall of Parliament House, followed by the formality in Parliament afterwards, uh, was acceptable. And I must say I ventured the view that we should go, which we should have gone the way of the Stolen Generation apology because that was quite an extraordinary event. They, in fact, went the Great Hall path uh, I was wrong in my view because I think the way in which they did that was was uh, quite exceptional. To have a thousand people in the hall uh, and then to do it formally in in the parliament was, um, I think, the way to go. And uh, it it really gave it enormous force, which was taken away, as we've said, by the extraordinary political efforts of later that day. Yeah, um, I guess this kind of leads into my next question. Um, The Senate report estimated that there were as many as 150,000 adoptions between 1951 to 1975 and 250,000 from 1940 to the present day. Considering that every adoption involves two biological parents, two adoptive parents, other immediate and extended family and the adopted person themselves, it is really impossible to know how many people have been affected by forced adoption policies and practices. And yet I feel that forced adoption doesn't have near as much community recognition as some other prominent issues that occurred around that same time period. Why do you think that is? Joe, I don't know. Um, I think uh, that uh, forced adoption carries with it emotional baggage which most people find too difficult to deal with. Yeah. And, um, of course, when you talk about the numbers affected, uh, you've also, I could add to that, to say, I've, I've always described it not 
like not like a dropping a pebble into a pond and seeing the ripples, uh, but dropping a stone into the pond and seeing a tsunami. Yeah. And um, because it's not only all of those classes of people who you refer to, but it's intergenerational. And and so it's, it's handed down to the second and the third generation of people affected by forced adoption. So the grandchildren of uh, people affected by forced adoption, by particularly mothers and to a certain extent fathers, uh, are um, are still being affected by it. And I had a uh, uh, I had somebody um, uh, come up to me uh, not so long ago at uh, uh, Monash and say that they knew that I'd been involved in this forced adoption and uh, that this. Uh, person's uh, grandmother who had recently uh, recently passed away uh, had been uh, directly affected by forced adoption it's so and and this person was was really very emotional about it this wasn't just a statement of fact and we sat down we went to one of the cafeterias and we sat down and and had a, uh, a coffee and talked about it and i've kept in contact with that person uh, and it's been very interesting indeed. Yeah. I mean, I know my own family, certainly my own children have, um, I've certainly visited some of my issues onto them and, and I certainly hope that through all the discussions we're having and the work that we're doing that um, that can stop with that generation, I hope, and not keep continuing on down. Ma'am, I've heard you say in speeches and interviews that while there have been positive resolutions since the apology, there remains considerable unfinished business. What would you like to see in the future? Um, this was part of the apology reference group and later the apology in, uh, implementation working group uh, that, um, that um, uh, was that were part of the reports that we made back to government at the conclusion of each of those uh, committees. Uh, there are all sorts of issues. One of them, for example, and I'm not putting this in any order, although I think there is one quite quite um, overwhelming one. Uh, one of them, for example, is a, a national day. Now, we proposed that forced adoption be... Uh, recognised uh, by the naming of a special forced adoptions day and we suggested that should be the 21st of March because of the, that was the date of the apology. Mm -hmm. uh, but government um, rejected that proposition uh, simply because uh, it was already a day specified as Harmony Day uh, and they didn't think they could have two two days and uh, the response to that which I gave was well I don't see why we can't have two uh, but in, in the event that you feel that we can't have two then let's make it another day let's mm. uh, let's uh, commemorate the day on which the Senate report was handed down but that had the problem that that could be only every four years because it was the 29th of February uh, <laughs> uh, but but uh, I mean how I always felt that there was another reason for not having a day which was never 
which was never uh, set out, because I, with the greatest respect, think the explanations which I've so far heard for that are uh, are light on, let us say. Yeah. So that's the the first part of it. Um, I think compensation is a major thing, and 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 I think that a government has an obligation towards uh, comp uh, compensation. Mm -hmm. I think that um, the harm that was done to people has been just um, so enormous as to warrant compensation. And of course, uh, there's the forgotten Australians and there's the stolen generation. So that 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 is still to be to be talked about. Um, look, the really big one to which I referred, I think, is birth certificates. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> birth certificates is a complicated issue and there are differing views as to how this should be resolved. My view is this. The register of the birth of every individual in the society must be registered, must show the truth. And so in the event that it's adoption, whether it's forced adoption or otherwise, some would say every adoption is forced, but um, that's another matter. Whatever it is, needs to show the truth about that person's origins. Yeah. And I don't think that it is acceptable to have a birth certificate in which the parents, the mother and father of a child are not shown. Mm -hmm. Likewise, um, adoptive parents have an overwhelmingly major role to play in that, that uh, child's uh, life and should also be shown. But they should be shown as being adoptive parents. That's that's a truthful statement. So that really what you should have is a register which says this is the, the antecedents of this child. Um, he, she was the child of X and Y who were the child's parents. At some later time, this child was adopted by such and such by order of such and such court on such and such a date, and these are the names and details of those people as well. So that's the starting point. Then there's a question of what document or documents should the uh, adopted person have? And this is the, this is the crucial thing because what we know about adoption and particularly with regard to adoptees is they're like every one of us in society. We need to know our roots and we need to know where we come from so that being able to have a birth certificate which shows all that information in my view, is absolutely a fundamental right of every person in the society. Yeah. Now, there are then, there's a nuance to this, if you like, in that there 
are circumstances in which an adoptee does not want to show uh, both aspects of that person's heritage. And although I'm not completely settled on this view, I think there is a really good argument for the proposition that an adopted person should have the right to have a certificate which shows any of the three combinations, that is uh, what the register shows, that is the parents and the adoptive parents on the one hand, or only the parents or only the adoptive parents. So that I think there's that right there and I think the society needs to recognise the rights of the adoptive parents. And Joe, we haven't talked about uh, the adopted, adopted person, I should say. We haven't talked about the adopted person. I think we need to, because the adopted person is is in a in a position which is really extraordinarily important in this whole discussion. Yeah. That's it. And, I mean, there are some cases where as an adopted person, you know, if you're fronting up to the post office to get some identification for a passport or so on, you don't really want to, you may not want to have that discussion with the person over the counter, but you still want to have a document that shows the truth of your heritage. That's right. Yeah. And that's why that's why I say that society has, has got to... Um, um, observe and recognise and and give effect to the rights of the adopted person. Yeah, yeah. So something we're seeing here um, in Queensland and other states uh, now is discharges of adoption. Yes. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Well, this goes to a much wider question, doesn't it? And that's the question of what should modern adoption look like. And uh, I've been arguing, I have to say, quite unsuccessfully for a very long time uh, that the whole area of the law of adoption needs to be uh, reformed and, and have major reforms. Um, would you like to go down this path now? Because I think it's it's really very, very important. Yeah, let's do that. I guess, I mean, you're a family court judge for years, so is simple adoption the answer? Um, okay. The starting point of this is that there are undoubtedly cases in which and I don't talk about cases in the strict legal sense, I mean in the wider sense, there are, there are circumstances in which a child cannot be cared for by his or her parents. The usual bases for that are um, uh, mental disability uh, or uh, drugs or alcohol addiction or um, uh, other disabilities and making primary care of that child by uh, those or one of those parents um, uh, contrary to the child's interests. And let me just emphasize what I've just said. This, this is about the question, what is in the best interests of the child? It is not about the adoptive parents and it is not about the parents, it's about the child. And it's gotta remain about the child. That has been 
the basis of Australian law for a very long time now, and it is right. And my 21 years on the family court um, uh, tells me tells me that. So that um, uh, we need a legal structure by which strangers to the child can be uh, ordered, could have an order in their favour that they have the care of that child. That's the starting point. Mm -hmm. Now, my work in forced adoption tells me that the word adoption is a really serious trigger, a traumatic trigger for a large number of people in society. And the question therefore has to be raised, should we be continuing to use the word adoption? Mm -hmm. Together with that, it seems to me that having a separate law of adoption that is separate from the law relating to the disposition of circumstances in which a child's care is under question, usually in the family law sense where the relationship between his or her parents has broken down, that, that, the, that what is now adoption um, should be conducted on the same basis as, as relationship breakdown in family law. Yeah. Then I get to the stage of saying, why is it that a child adopt, adopted in Albury and a child adopted in, uh, well, in your Queensland sense, uh, uh, Joe Tweedheads and, uh, and uh, what surface paradise, why should they be adopted pursuant to two different laws just because of a state border? Why should not the law in this area be uniform right through the country? Yeah. as it is in family law. And if you put all of that together, then why is it that you need a separate adoption law uh, which sits alongside the Family Law Act and is applied by different courts, the state courts, why shouldn't you amalgamate it with the whole of the family law? You would need to make amendments to the Family Law Act, but that's not beyond the wit of, of, uh, uh, of people, even lawyers. And, and, and in those circumstances, why can't you meld the whole thing together? Now, I've argued this in legal and political circles for many, many years uh, with absolutely no success at all. Uh, but uh, it's a question which I don't think has ever been satisfactorily or at least to my like my mind uh, satisfactorily answered yeah i mean it's interesting that you say adoption is a is a trigger word for many people who've been affected and certainly that was the case for me this week um because lately we've had a lot of terrible stories in the media about trauma and abuse under the supervision of child protection authorities and there always follows a call that adoption is the answer and this week in queensland we had an announcement from the Department of Child Safety that they're tabling amendments to the Child Protection Act to clarify adoption as an option for achieving permanency. So, um, 
you know, as soon as that comes out, I'm triggered. I know a lot of other people are. Um, sometimes I feel like it's a knee-jerk response. Like, what are your thoughts with when you hear things like that? Well, Joe, you've been kind enough to send me uh, the material and particularly the um, uh, media release of the uh, Minister for Child Safety, Youth and Women in in Queensland. Yeah. Um, there's one word that jumps out at me when, when I read this, and that's the word permanency, because my time in family law tells me that talking about permanent relationships, uh, per permanent arrangements for a child defies the concept of the upbringing of a child. The reality is that a child of two has different needs to a child of 12, and we need to recognise that. We know, for example, in family law, relationship breakdown, that the orders that we make for that child at two, for example, to see uh, to see uh, the other the, the, the secondary parent, if you like, if there's if there is a secondary parent, um, uh, if for two hours uh, twice a week, uh, might become two out of three weekends and half the school holidays or something like that. And you 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 need to be able to adapt the circumstances of the of the orders that a court makes uh, to the needs of the child at the particular time. So talking about permanency is, in my view, with profound respect to the minister, um, is fallacious. I think really what you need to do is talk about long term. Yes, you need to, to think about giving the child as much security in his, his or her upbringing and the circumstances in which he or she lives as you can but you need to recognize that 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 those circumstances change and nothing that that is nowhere more emphasized than in circumstances concerning a disabled child uh, the reality is that adoptions go wrong in the same way as family law orders go wrong. And you, you don't have permanency. The orders you make today, you hope, will last until the child reaches 18, uh, at which time he or she is, is um, uh, empowered by the law to make uh, his or her own decisions. But the reality is that it doesn't happen like that. And and you can revisit cases uh, every year or two or, or whatever in some circumstances, and that's particularly in the area of, um, uh, of uh, child uh, children growing up with parents who are disagreeing. Yeah. So can I, can I just add one other thing too? Yeah. My family law experience uh, and, and, and the evidence is overwhelming that parents who fight uh, create a troubled child. And that it's, it's an absolute truism in child rearing. Mm -hmm. And one of the really important aspects 
of that you look for in making decisions with respect to children affected by relationship breakdown is the preparedness of each of the parents to promote the child's uh, relationship with the other parent. And we know from forced adoption that adoptees, adopted people, uh, need to know what their heritage is and they should be treated in exactly the same way. That is, if the circumstances are right, they should have every opportunity to have an ongoing relationship with their parents. And uh, in case there are uninitiated people in this area, I'm using parents in terms of what would be called biological parents, uh, but, but it is... Sorry. That's all right. It had to be one of us that had a call come in. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, I thought I'd, I'd um, um, silence this. That's all right. Uh, I've got a teenager yelling outside my bedroom. Uh, sorry, outside my office uh, door here. So <laughs> yeah, well, we've I'll also have your got, phone and my teenager. We, we've also got uh, uh, builders here. I was scared that it would be noise. <laughs> there hasn't been, fortunately. Um, just let me go back to that. You let that out, yeah. obviously, Joe. Uh, in case um, uh, people are wondering about my terminology, I use the words, uh, the word parent and mother and father uh, as being what uh, some call the biological uh, mother or the biological father or the biological parent. Mm -hmm. But we drop the word biological because it's a tautology. If you're the mother, you're the mother. You're, you're the person who gave birth to the child and yeah. you don't need the word birth, mother or biological or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So an important part, returning to the main point, an important part of the provisions with respect to adoption, and this is very controversial, in my view has to be the preparedness of the adopting parents to promote the child's relationship with the parents. And uh, if they're not prepared to do so, that can be a negative aspect of your consideration of whether an adoption order should be made. Yeah. Um, I know that uh, the Victorian state government will soon be beginning their own inquiry into forced adoption. It's been delayed by COVID. Um, what can you tell us about that process and as it's coming up and what your thoughts are? Well, um, it's, uh, it hasn't gone very far at all yet uh, that the committee has been established and uh, they were supposed to get going. I think they were supposed to get going next week, but again, because of this uh, this extra lockdown here in um, in Greater Melbourne, uh, that's been uh, put off. Uh, but uh, uh, I'm being consulted, others as well, I'm being consulted by the uh, secretary to the committee uh, and there are going to be hearings. Uh, I'm hoping uh, that all of those um, issues, uh, birth certificates, uh, compensation, uh, law reform and all of those sort of things 
uh, will be considered by this committee. It's too early yet, but but I think it's important to note uh, that 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 is happening. May I just uh, say this that I think the project you're undertaking uh, by these uh, these interviews is an excellent one. I've listened to the others in the series. And if I may say with respect that I think, uh, yeah, you know I've, I hold uh, uh, Jigsaw in the highest esteem uh, and uh, uh, that includes all of you in it, but if I may name somebody, that, uh, that is uh, Trevor Jordan. I think the work that you and, and uh, all your support organisations right through Australia uh, and the peer groups uh, with them uh, are doing it is just uh, quite exceptional and more strength to your arm. Thank you so much for that. And we truly appreciate your time today, Nam. And I have to say that you've been such a great friend to Jigsaw Queensland and the adoption community and um, have really championed for us. And you're always so generous with your time and we just cannot thank you enough. Thank you. Thanks so much for being with us. And um, we'll say goodbye now to Nayam Mushin. Thanks and goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Joe Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Mm-hmm.